You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Now, before we continue with the show, I must, I must provide a disclaimer, which I didn't do, I think, the last episode, but here it is again. I, as a human, as a person, use colourful language to the point that my boss is incredibly shocked because she has never heard me swear. Not once. And she was like, how much self-control do you have? Apparently, quite a lot. Now, so if you love history, but don't like cursing, swearing, profanities, expletives, etc., then I'm going to suggest you go somewhere else because I swear like a fucking sailor. And, And so if you do have an issue with that, it's best we part ways now. And now, some housekeeping. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has been still rating and reviewing five stars on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, you know, the proper one. Like, if you are on Apple Podcasts, like, when you do uh, a review, if you write anything in the box, it just boosts you up somehow. I, I don't know how it works, but apparently that's a thing. And when that happens... I'm more likely to get sponsors and I'm more likely to go up the charts and it's really going to help me create more content. Now, I could say it's not for my ego. I mean, it's not, but it is a wee bit because I do love hearing nice things about me. Speaking of compliments, actually, uh, I had this old video where I talk about um, lack of communication in relationships is how relationships die and you can't be surprised when a girl checks out after being, like, disregarded, you know? Anyway, some dude comments on it with uh, something along the lines of mm, you're like a seven on the British Isles and then a two everywhere else in the world so no wonder men stop talking to you or something along those lines. So I make a video response where it's just really cute pictures of me and it, with like the line, sorry to burst your bubble but I'm cute as fuck. And <laughs> which was just it's just like a, a clap back to be like, mate, no, I'm I'm adorable. You don't you don't want to mess with me. And I got some hilarious responses like this girl goes all the way up to eleven, which you know, spinal tap. 
And one of my favourites was, you'd be a solid eight here in Australia, and we have the Hemsworths, so we grade pretty hard. (laughs) I was like, I'm framing that, or I'm going to embroider it onto a decorative pillow. Like, we have the Hemsworths, we can grade pretty hard, that's fucking hilarious. But I know what you're thinking, you're thinking what your jibber jabber, in fact me. In fact you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Sources are... Antisocial Behaviour in Britain by Sarah Pickard. The Politics of Alcohol, A History of the Drink Question in England by James Nichols. The Workhouse, A Social History by Norman Longmate. The Story of Japan, Tin Plate Working and Bicycle and Galvanising Trades in Wolverhampton by W.H. Jones. Slumming, Sexual and Social Politics in Victorian London by Seth Coven. Crime and Society in Wolverhampton, 1815 to 1860 by Roger Swift. The Victims of Jack the Ripper by Neil Stubbings Sheldon. Jack the Ripper, The Definitive Casebook by Richard Whittington Egan. Wayward Women, Female Offending in Victorian England by Lucy Williams. May My End a Warning Be, Catherine Eddowes and Gallows Literature in the Black Country by Jarrett Kobick. Wages and Cost of Living in the Victorian Era by George P. Lando and James Skipper. Anything But Your Prayers, Victims and Witnesses on the Night of the Double Event by Antonio Cerrone and Jane Corum. The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. And of course our old friends, Biography.com and History.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. So Catherine Eddowes, she's very, very interesting because she is so different to, you know, the women we have met thus far. So at least with the other three canonical victims, they have been somewhat in line at some point with, you know, the expected respectability of Victorian society. They have fallen in line and then they've sort of deviated from that. Whereas Catherine never really seemed to be on the track anyway. She always seemed to be going a different course. And what's really fascinating is her life and the way that she lived it. It shows a very, very different scenario to, again, what we've seen so far with these women. And that their life experiences and what they went through as humans is just astounding. And not to be controversial, but I'm convinced that Catherine Eddowes is actually the final victim of the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper, or at least the final victim in England. But more on that later. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We should probably start at the beginning. Catherine Eddowes was born on the 14th of April 1842 in Graisley Green in Wolverhampton to George and Catherine Eddowes. And Catherine Eddowes Jr., she didn't really lack for siblings because she's number six, okay? Which isn't surprising because this is Victorian London and contraception is created by Beelzebub himself. So, you know, keep forcing women to go through, you know, terrible pregnancies and horrific childbirth, you know, which, which was, you know, for centuries, one of the leading causes of death of women. But anyway, 
So George Eros, he's a tin plate worker. He is a fully skilled, trained, qualified. He did the whole seven year apprenticeship. He was from a line of tin plate workers. And this went into everything from like kettles to trays to other things involving tin that I cannot recall off the top of my head at this moment. But yeah, so tin was very, very important. And George, George was a decent fellow because he believed in fair wages for fair work. And he was part of a union. A union led a strike. And, well, needless to say, the tin bosses and his wee tin crown really wasn't too happy with the whole striking scenario and decided to ensure that George was punished. So he ends up being, uh, well, one, uh, sent to jail to do, like, hard labour for several months. I think it's several months. I'm fairly certain it's several months. But anyway, that. And he gets blackballed in Wolverhampton. So he, even though it is a very incredibly skilled tin plate worker, he can't get a job in his area. So him, the wife, and the six kids get on a boat and sail down to London. Far enough away that the reaches of, you know, the tin plate king ain't gonna get him. And also in an area where him being so highly skilled is gonna be a great benefit because he's a skilled labourer. You know, he'll make more money. Unfortunately, because of the uh, family size, that's gonna be a little bit less so. And so at this point, Catherine is only like less than two years old. And so London is basically gonna be the home that she knows. Her older siblings are gonna remember Wolverhampton. She is not. So because their family keeps growing until the point of, well, her mum gives birth to 12 kids in total, but only 10 of those children survive. Which, being the Victorian era, pretty good odds, actually. That's doing pretty well. But, so there's uh, 10 kids. And yeah, George is this highly skilled tin plate worker. He's earning a really decent wage. Unfortunately, because there are so many mouths to feed, that wage is spread very, very thin. Very thin. Meaning that by the time kid number 10 is on the scene, many of the family are going to be quite aware of what it's like to go to sleep with a less than full stomach. Now we chatted about Victorian society before and how a lot of the times older children would be expected to help take care of the younger children, especially in a larger family. Now, by the time Catherine is six though, uh, she would have had like basic household chores, you know, because childhood itself was a very, uh, it's a very vague and short thing, especially for working class children in, you know, the Victorian era. And so something, there must have been something special in her because she gets sent to this school, the Dowgate School, which is basically exists to try and give children sort of a helping hand out of poverty and of course mould and create 
the right kind of working class person, to instill morals in them and to keep them away from the vices of, you know, the street or home or whatever they think is going on there. But also to try and, uh, you know, get these people into positions like clerks in banks, um, engineering, um, architect services. Oh, you know, the kind of stuff for boys. But for girls, it's kind of... um. Domestic service, just lots and lots of domestic service. Nothing really that great, but it did mean that she could read and write. And for whatever reason, George and Catherine, they picked little Catherine. Now, it could have been that she was the right age to start and it was just lucky, or it could have been there was just something special about her, maybe? Or she was really annoying and they wanted her out of the house. I don't know. There are reasons parents push kids into things. That's all I'm saying. Or she was perceived as annoying for them. But anyway, she goes to the school. Things are going all right because there's no information of her like acting out or being a wee arse or doing incredibly well. So maybe she was just average and that's all right, you know? But when she's there, she learns to read and write and she learns music. Because music is food for the soul and they probably thought it was good for them spiritually or something. Probably. But she learns to sing and she learns music. And like, also, I don't think she's a wee arse because so far everyone describes her as kind of like happy and jolly and just kind of, just kind of nice. Now, things are going all right, at the very least. They are doing all right for Catherine. But in 1855, when she's 13 years old, her 42-year-old mother dies from consumption, or as we'd know it, tuberculosis. The same thing that Annie Chapman's mother died from. Because, you know, was making the rounds. Leaving George to support and raise the rest of his family or at least you know the ones that haven't left and got married so emma the eldest sister she'd come back to nurse the mother for a while and to try and take care of the household but this didn't last too long because two years after this george also dies but not before walking his daughter elizabeth who i think is the second oldest up the aisle so there was some niceness there. He was helped so that he could do the walk, but in 1857, he dies. Emma has to go into full-time employment or else she's not going to survive. Um, her sister Elizabeth has married. Then there's Harriet had settled down as well. Um, so they were all kind of sorted. Their, their brother Alfred, he was 23, but he had some additional needs and he was also epileptic so taking care of him was one of their priorities as was what to do with Catherine who was 15 at this point and they realised they can't take her in or the rest of the children for that matter so what they do is they send Catherine up to Wolverhampton to live with an aunt and uncle so she goes up to Wolverhampton the older siblings are, you know, all settling down or getting to work. Alfred 
and the four young and the youngins well they get sent to the workhouse so thomas george sarah ann and mary not that long after their father's you know death they get sent to the workhouse and catherine leaves everything she's ever known and heads up to Wolverhampton in family that she doesn't actually know. So yeah, she ends up in Wolverhampton. They send her on a train at least, she didn't have to do the boat, so. It took her less time to get there. So she gets there and, um, you know, she's lost both her parents. You know, her family are all either settling down or being chucked into a workhouse, which is super fucking fun. But of course, losing all of your family and being ripped to a place that you don't even know is no excuse for you not to be, you know, paying your own way and having having a job. So yeah, she gets sent out to, you know, the tin plate factories and gets a job as a scourer. And she's, you know, all day, like 7am to 7pm. You know, when she's not there, she's expected to do domestic duties at home. But... The tin workers' uh, pub is just a wee couple doors down, so she usually kind of tries to spend as much time there instead of at home because then there's less shit for her to do. And for whatever reason, one day when she's working in the tin factory, she decides it's going to be a super great idea to try and nick some stuff. Had she done it before? Was this the first time? You know, was this just the first time she was caught? Whom's to say? All we know is that she gets caught and she gets fired, which is probably for the best, because the other option was to be brought before the magistrate. So it was either going to be go to court or just be dismissed from her position. And see, her aunt and uncle, they are good, upstanding members of the public, and so they are absolutely pissed at this. And so they make sure that she doesn't forget the fact that she stole, which is a sin. And having to deal with this, you know, strict home and this beratement she's getting, she decides at 19, fuck this for a game of soldiers, packs up her stuff and buckers off to another uncle's house. So it's something like 14 miles south of Overhampton. Birmingham is only 14 miles south, yeah? No? I suck at geography. And she goes to stay with her uncle Tom Eddowes, who by day was a shoemaker and by night was a bare-knuckle boxer. So there she stays with her uncle Tom and Aunt Rosanna and she needs to get a job. Luckily, he's relatively well-known. He knows a few people. He can get her a gig. And he does. She's not a scourer anymore, though. She's a polisher. Polishing fancy trays, which does seem a lot better than, you know, standing over acid baths. So this lasts for four months, and she buckers off back to Wolverhampton again, but to stay with her granny, and she does this and becomes a template stamper. So, like, just constantly in the tin, cannot escape the tin. So somewhere during this, um, whether it was in Birmingham or Wolverhampton, she meets... Thomas Conway. So Conway was originally um, from Mayo. He was in the army. County Mayo in Ireland, I should say. And he was in like the 18th Regiment, Irish Regiment of the British Army or something like that. He was in the army. Um, He had like a 
bad heart and a weak chest and he caught some kind of thing in India. And that's what happens when you colonise places, you get diseases that you just can't handle. So don't do that. Uh, yeah, so uh, he is medically unfit to rejoin the army and he's got an army pension. And he's also a chap man. Um, so he sells, well, chap books, which are like, um, these printed books of, of like ballads and poems and all this stuff. And also he would sell like ribbons and thimbles and, you know, just like sell stuff and tell stories really, you know. And so by 1862, uh, her family, they don't like Conway. They don't think he's good for her in any way. They think he's a bit of a cad and he's Irish as well. So that's obviously an issue for them. Uh, they're not going to say it, but he is. And they're like, he can't support you. He's only got like a seven pence, like, pension. Ooh. And they're like, it's him or us. And Kate goes, I'm going to call her Kate now. Catherine goes, him. And so she moves into a lodging house with him. And next thing you know, she's pregnant. And so this couple, they don't really stay long in Wolverhampton, right? Because he's a chapman. He's out selling his chapbooks and selling all his stuff. So it's up to him to roam the English countryside to find places to sell his wares. And Catherine, she thinks this is a much better way of life than I'm currently living. Like, it's totally against, you know, the norms. They're not married. They don't, they don't get married. You know, they're having a kid. And... Instead of facing the drudgery of factory work, of being in these blackened cities and being constrained and being ruled over, there would have been a real sense of freedom in this, a real opportunity for her. Something for her to do and live and to fucking enjoy her life. And so off they go and she's really handy to have. Because she can sing, remember? She can write her own ballads. And he's illiterate. But she isn't. So she can write tales. She can press stories. You know? She would go and sing on town squares. And they would make this. They were a really good team, really. Because he was charming. And he's uh, this Irish lilt. And he's clearly a good salesman because he would not be alive if that was the case, you know? You can't... You wouldn't have lasted that long. And she's just boosting business. And it's not, like, great money. It's not super money, but it's enough to live on. And, again, it gives her the freedom that she was missing. But, of course, 1863 rolls around. They've been doing this for nearly a year and she's presenting herself at the great Yarmouth workhouse like at the infirmary doors so for working class women a lot of them especially those who weren't um who did not have a fixed abode they would normally go to workhouses to give birth however her treatment there would depend on how she was viewed so when she gets there she tells them her name is Catherine Conway you know, she's married. And uh, to Conway, she's not. 
She's not married to Conway at all, not even a wee bit. But she says she's married and they're like, okay, that seems good enough. You seem respectable enough. You can have your baby here. Even though there's no wedding ring on her, you know, they can always make the excuse of perhaps, you know, oh, we had to sell it because we were hungry or whatever. And her daughter Annie is born. So, oh, one thing I should say about Catherine Eddowes is she has a tattoo. Now, having a tattoo now, even for some women, is seen sort of outrageous. But back in the Victorian era, like, it was not a done thing. Women didn't get tattoos unless you were, like, in a sideshow, you know? Men got tattoos to show their manliness, to show the lives they lived, like, if they were sailors and shit. But women did not get tattoos. But she had a T and a C tattooed on her arm. So she had a little Thomas Conway tattoo, which was like their way of being, you know, connected as opposed to like a wedding band. But again, not actually married. They're just cohabitating. And again, very frowned upon in Victorian society. But yeah, so the thing is, they would have acted as if they were husband and wife. They would have just told people they were husband and wife. You know, they would act like they were married. So little Annie is born and they don't stop their nomadic ways. They continue with this. So they do this for, what, another year or so? Until they finally end up back in London. So they have a couple more kids and they've settled in London because they've got to settle somewhere because you cannot travel with that many children. Not then, anyway. And this leads to some issues because he's a Chapman. You know, he has really, really stiff competition in London. Like, it's not the same as it was. And it's just really tough for him. Although, he, he is consistently working or begging, you know. And that's something they're doing. They're either begging or they're singing. Or they're trying to sell their tiny wares. Like, there's always something going on. They're always trying to make money. And you see herself, again, like the majority of the women that we've discussed so far, fond of gin. Who isn't fond of gin? They used to sell it by the fucking pint. By the pint. Imagine drinking a pint of gin. That just feels dangerous by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, what are you drinking? A pint of gin? A pint of gin. Oh yeah, now that's, that's super, Katie. You just keep doing that. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. But so she would drink and, well, how would I put this? Um, he would beat her. And it was expected that this was her fault. You know, she clearly needed to be, you know, disciplined or trained or all the other bullshit they used to label. Like, no, no, she did not deserve to get beaten. She didn't deserve to get hit. Like, she actually reported him, you know, for beating her. But <sighs> that didn't last and it was just kind of expected for her to go home. And they're trying to make ends meet, but it's not quite working because they are struggling. They're really struggling. They don't have enough money. They can't support themselves. They can't support their children. And her youngest dies of malnutrition because they can't afford to feed themselves, let alone her. And by the end of this year, Thomas Conway, he decides to set off again to continue the nomadic lifestyle to earn some money. Meaning he's left his wife and kids just alone in London with no way to support themselves. And so she has to go stay with her sister Elizabeth for a while. And it is only for a while because, you know... On top of everything else, her family, they didn't really like Thomas Conway. They also didn't like the fact that, you know, she had tattoos and she wasn't married and she was living a life which was just, I want to say subversive to the Victorian norm, but they, they tried. But eventually, things just ain't working out and she has to go to the workhouse, bringing her seven-year-old daughter and two-year-old son the three of them, at the Greenwich Union Workhouse. And this becomes very much a pattern for her. So she ends up having to go in the workhouse, you know, quite a lot because she needs to survive and her children need to survive. And generally she's in there with at least one of her kids, you know. And she even ends up giving birth again in the workhouse. And by 1876... When she's been on the swings and roundabouts of the workhouse regime, she is going to give birth to her fourth child. Now, at this point, um, her youngest is three, and he gets to stay with her in her part of the workhouse. But kids over seven, they have to be taken to a separate part of the workhouse to be, like, schooled and stuff. So Annie's 13, George, I think, is seven at that point. Maybe he's eight. But anyway, they get taken away from their mother and they have to go. But at least they're getting, you know, something. They're getting an education and they're getting some food, which is nice. So the reason that she has to keep coming to the workhouse anyway is because she's not eligible for parish funds. Like, they don't give support to what they called 
fallen women, you know, because they were the unworthy poor. You know what I mean? She's seen basically the same as a sex worker because she's unwed. She has children, which is clearly her fault, you know? Clearly. But yeah, she's in and out of the workhouse. And yeah, the older kids are taken away. But they do get to have this little, like, chat once a week. Like, they get to have visiting hours, effectively. And they get to speak to their children, which, I mean, is... I'm going to say is something. That's something, right? That's something. And Conway, he was going sort of in and out of their lives. Because he would leave, he would do his work, he'd do his Chapman stuff. And then he'd come back. And so he would be back and forth. But he wasn't, you know, stable. There wasn't a stable income. And he was out working to provide for himself, not necessarily his family. So she ends up in and out of, like, the workhouse, like, like seven times in total. Like, she's just there so much. And it gets to the point where when he does come back, he just can't handle her. And so he's violent and she's drinking. But is she drinking because he's violent? Or is she drinking, you know, to escape everything that's going on in her life? Like, having to consistently go to the workhouse and they interview when you go in. And these are designed to make you feel bad about yourself. They're designed to bring you down and break your spirit. I think, I think we discussed this like in the first episode. And they're designed to crush you. And to layer the guilt upon you. Just smother you in it. And so she's had a hard time. And the man that is supposed to be caring for her and supporting her as is the way of the era, is physically assaulting her. And after one particularly nasty fight, I say fight as if, you know, it was a two-way thing, but after an incident, I suppose, she takes nine-month-old Thomas? Frederick. Frederick. And she goes to a casual ward with him. She stays over, she just does that. And then she goes and spends some time with her sisters. Like, she spends time for Christmas. And they are, like, shocked. Because, like, she's got two black eyes. Like, she's clearly been, like, pummeled, you know? And, like, like most women, or most people who are in domestic abuse relationships, they, it's revolving doors, you know? They end up going back. And sometimes because there's nowhere else, because the other options are just horrific. Like, and there's there's so many layers to it that I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to open up some channels in my head and start crying because let's not do that. But eventually, after again being in and out of the workhouse, again, in 1879, Frederick passes away. So she has lost her youngest son. And at some point during this year, she also, like, takes both of her boys out singing with her. And then she leaves them deserted in the street, where a policeman then takes them to the workhouse until Annie, their oldest sister, comes and collects them. 
By 1881, she finally, finally leaves Conway. Like, properly done. And when she is finally done, she leaves him and her two youngest children because, well, he had all the rights to them anyway. Married or not, he had control. He had power. She didn't. And so she finally goes. And for the most part, she would stay on Flower Indian Street. She would stay in the, you know, the Doss houses, the common lodging houses. And she would get by, bit of work, bit of singing, uh, cleaning, sewing. She got work with um, Jewish families in the area because Whitechapel at this time was an area of mass immigration, which is why a lot of the Ripper theories we get are, well, they're either entrenched in, like, misogyny or, well, anti-Semitism. Like, there is so much just nonsense that just spews from hate and that's why we have all of these preconceived notions it's why the concept of Jack came about it's why he went from leather apron to Jack the Ripper but that's another argument for another day so by the time she leaves Conway uh, she's, she's generally in a lodging house generally Flower and Dean Street because, you know, it's the most affordable for her. So she ends up, like a year after leaving Conway, she ends up in this relationship with this dude, John Kelly. And John, well, he's, um... He, like her, is also a drinker. But are they drinking to numb the pain? To escape? To chase some, you know, fun? Whom's to say? But yes, she is seeing John Kelly and the relationship seems to be um, kind of, I don't know, symbiotic? Is that the word I'm looking for? It's codependent, you know, they're both relying on each other for survival. Well, in fairness, it's Victorian London, we've discussed this before, like she really needs protection as a woman and the best form of protection for her is to be in a relationship with a man. And if she is sharing, you know, a bed with him in a lodging house, it will keep other men away from her. It's a safety blanket, you know? How their romance came about, well, they met in the lodging house on Flower and Dean Street. Like, they met each other there, they got along, and things just seemed to work out for both of them. Unfortunately... As much as her family weren't keen on Conway, they disliked John Kelly even more. Because he was he was an aberration for Victorian London, you know what I mean? He was a drinker, he didn't have a full-time job, and he wasn't a grafter really, not like Conway was. Conway was consistently working. But Kelly, less so. And it's after they meet that she ends up being taken before the magistrate's court for being drunk and disorderly. Now, it's reported that she never really drank that much. She didn't generally drink to excess. You know, she wasn't often overfilling her cup. But sometimes, sometimes, bit too much gin. Gin, uh, make makes things less than pleasant for everybody involved. Now, on top of this, right, she's also known for being 
kind, considerate and compassionate. So if she knew somebody who was like a regular at the lodging house and they didn't have the four pence or whatever to, to, you know, pay for their bed, she would give, if she had the spare money, she would give them money to cover the bed for them. And she did this more than once. Like, eventually she does get a job working um, sort of in the Jewish community. She's cleaning, she's sewing, she's doing all that kind of stuff, and she's getting by. But something her and Kelly also do is seasonal hop picking in Kent. So basically, hops needed picked for, like, beer and the like. So a lot of, you know, seasonal workers, they would head out every season or every year to go and pick the hops that would then be used for beer and bread and all that jazz. And generally these summers were, for lack of a better word, fruitful. So it was a decent way for them to earn their keep, really. And and that's fair enough, like, you go where the work is, you get it and you do your best to earn money so that you can survive, like, for the rest of the year. You know, on the scraps you're gonna get. So they spend their summers in Kent, hot picking, and then when they're back in London, again, she's sewing, cleaning, selling songs, begging, because, you know, you do what you have to do. And she's no stranger to sleeping rough, either. She's known to sleep in a place called The Shed, where it's basically just kind of this wee front room situation. But she's sleeping on, you know, alleyways and in sort of nooks and crannies. And she does go to her sister trying to get money, you know, to find somewhere to stay. Because she, she does go through a lot of it. It's not hard when you don't have a steady income to go through money. So she's there, she's with Kelly. They go to their last hop-picking summer in 1888. And they come back. And he ends up staying in Florendine Street. And she ends up staying in the casual ward down a Mile End. And when she stays there, you know, she's telling everyone her name is Kate uh, Kelly. So she's gone from Catherine Conway to Kate Kelly. And, eh, change is good, I guess. But when she's there, she's explaining, you know, you know why, where was she? Where was she? Because, you know, they ask these kind of questions. And she's like, oh, well, I was hot-picking. So I was working and now I've returned to London. And so I need somewhere to stay. Fair enough. So he stays there and she stays in the casual ward for another night. So it's not too long that she's returned from hot picking from Kent. And they're down to their last tuppence, really. And they don't have enough to stay anywhere. So John Kelly pawns his boots. So he is barefoot so that he can sleep in the lodging house. And Catherine, she heads off to see her daughter. That's her that's her plan. She's heading away to see her daughter, who's like fully grown. This is Annie. You know, seeing if she can, you know, scrape a couple pennies off her. And she's supposed to be back by like two o'clock, four o'clock. Sometime in the afternoon, he's expecting her back because she's like, I'm going to go get some money and I'll be back because he's 
just covered the cost of the room. So she's expecting to be back. And about four o'clock that day, Catherine Eddowes is found slumped against a wall. Absolutely sloshed. The woman is pie-eyed. She's drunk. She's absolutely just gin-fueled at this point. If you struck a match next door, it would be like the beacon of Gondor went up, right? And she's just not not great. People are trying to like help her up. They're worried about her because she's an absolute state. Whatever happened that day that drove her to drink that much, like to get that drunk, like to go get the money, because she must have got the money, and then to get that hammered, like something must have happened. Like there's no way someone suddenly decides to drink themselves into a stupor, especially not someone who's used to drinking, you know, and doesn't really get that drunk too often. And they're normally jolly, happy Catherine Eddowes is less than chirpy at this point. So the group of people, they see her there, they're worried about her and they summon, you know, policemen. And the thing is as well, remember, this is the whole Victorian London temperance obsession that, you know, the demon drink and oh, all that fucking bullshit, right? And she is, well, she's seen as either a poor creature or a weak fool. You know, it's, you're a bad person if you consume alcohol. That's kind of the morality, no morality for you. No, 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 no. Because you had your snifter of, I don't know, port or whatever. Well, a snifter of port is fine, but a pint of gin, eh, not really. It's one of those class things, you know. But anyway, uh, they try and get her up. She slumps to the ground and it's a struggle. So the police officer comes and she gets put in the drunk tank. That's right. It's half eight at night this happens. It's half eight at night. Um, so still, it's, she's supposed to be home by four. And she's absolutely hammered lying there in the street. So anyway, she gets taken into the clink. She's in the cells and she gets brought in. They ask her her name. She responds with nothing. Because, you know, sassy. And, yeah, she falls asleep. Zonks out. Because uh, she's, you know, she's pissed. And a couple hours later, half twelve, the morning of the 30th of September, I guess, she wakes up. And, um... Yeah, she asks when she gets to leave. And they basically tell her she can go once she can take care of herself. So, like, once she's sober enough to go. And then what happens is she starts singing. And she doesn't stop singing. And it takes 30 minutes. 30 minutes of her singing. Annoying the jailer, the policeman, whoever's there. And he's just like, okay, fine. You're fine. You can go, you're sober enough to go. I think he was just sick of her, to be honest. He was like, no, I'm done, get out. And so she leaves. And as she goes, well, there's a story that she gives her name as Mary Jane Kelly. That is absolute bollocks. She gives her name as nothing. Like, that's it, plain and simple. She, 
but they know her, they recognize her, that's how it is. So when she totters out, she doesn't head towards Flower and Dean Street. She heads towards Aldgate, which is like where the, the well, there's a present there that way. But also it's like where one of her sisters kind of lives around there. And as she's heading out towards there, I mean, she's not sober. Not really. She's not compass mentis. She's definitely still tipsy. And it's pitch black. This is smoggy London with barely a gaslight. You know, you are struggling to move around. And so, as she's done many times before, she finds somewhere to sleep. Because again, this is a woman who slept in the countryside, in barns, in sheds, in under the stars. You know, this woman will sleep anywhere. Like, could sleep on the edge of a razor blade, probably. And so she's in Mitre Square. She positions herself appropriately, as one does. And as she rests, on the morning of the 30th of September, barely half an hour as she has been released from the cells, her life is taken. And like the rest of the victims of Jack the Ripper, she has been murdered in her sleep. And it's really funny to me because so many people have an issue with this that, like, there's this weird esteem held up about Jack, right? There's this sort of respect in a weird and creepy way that he has to be clever. He has to be smart. He has to be, like, hounding these particular women for a particular reason as opposed to a cowardly shit of a man who murdered vagrants, homeless women, women in their sleep. And the idea that it's not some big conspiracy, that it's not some genius level, like Hannibal Lecter, just amazing myth of a man, when really it's just a violent arsehole who finds the weak. You know, there's this whole saying, it's like, if you pick on the weak, then you're even weaker. And that's who I think Jack the Ripper is. They found an easy target and they used it to just mutilate and destroy any semblance of who these women were. Now, I don't really like to talk about the actual murder so much because the focus should be on these women. And her body is discovered by a policeman who's like, she wasn't there five minutes ago, I swear. And it's like, or did you not look? Or maybe you just didn't pass that direction? Or maybe you weren't quite doing the rounds you were supposed to be doing. Maybe you were somewhere else. Maybe you're covering your eyes by saying, oh, that happened really suddenly, clearly. But it just... Mm, I, don't, I don't subscribe to this everybody being honourable scenario just because it doesn't make sense. But anyway, 
when she passes away, her family, even though they're not the wealthiest of people in the world, they ensure she has a decent send-off. See, her family, they were not going to let her go into a pauper's grave. It wasn't happening. And the thing is as well, she was well-liked. She was known as being jolly and kind and people knew her from singing and they knew her from you know, being around. And because as well, due to the horrific way that she was mutilated, like it became a sort of turning point for a lot of people. And you had people lining the streets on the day of her funeral. Like, as the morning carriage went through, they paid for a morning carriage. That's not cheap. And, like, in the morning carriage, you've got John Kelly, you've got, I think, four of Catherine's sisters, and a couple of her nieces. And so the morning coach is following the coffin, and there's, what, I think about 500 people waiting, sort of nearby the City of London Cemetery when she actually gets interred. And then... 43 years old, Catherine Eddowes is laid to rest. And thus ends our story of Catherine Eddowes, who I believe is the last victim, or at least in the UK, the last English victim of Jack the Ripper. And I know this is a weird thing to say, but if you liked my retelling of the history of, of Catherine Eddowes, feel free to rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I it feels weird to promote after that, it really does. Um, yeah, finish up my news. You can, obviously, come see me in Kansas for the very last Heartland Pagan Festival. I'm going to be there doing... One talk with a Q&A, three workshops, and a live podcast recording. It's going to be swell. So there's that. There's a code for tickets in the description down below. Use code katie 23 at checkout for a discount. There's also a little link for the Trover Trip emailing list. So if you want to join me on my trip to Scotland in spring of next year, I just if you haven't already done the survey, it's fine. You don't have to worry about it. Um, if you've done the survey, you don't need to join the mailing list. But if you haven't done that and you still want to think about going, just add your name to the email list and you'll be added. And we'll let you know more details as they come. I'm so excited. I've never done like a proper tour of Scotland. It's been so long since I was there properly. And there's so many areas I've never been to. And there's so much history. Ah, uh, and there's so many castles. I fucking love wee castles, though. I really do. I bloody love a castle. I really, really do. And let me see now. Anything else to tell you? Oh, recommendation time. How could I go without recommendation time? So, for watching, I'm going to recommend you watch the Eurovision this Friday if you're watching this on... um. If you're listening to this, sorry, um, on release day or release week, go watch the Eurovision. Like, if it isn't tacky and cheesy and camp or just plain weird, then it shouldn't be in Eurovision, I'm sorry. Don't be serious for Eurovision. I want madness. I want chaos. 
And yeah, if you're if you're at time, do that. Uh for reading, I am going to suggest Mortal Monarchs by Susie Edge. Just with the coronation, it's inspired me. And finally, for listening. Everyone should listen to the lesbian version of Jolene. It is so good. It is probably one of my favourite pieces of music at the minute. It's just so fun. And with that, oh yeah, you can uh, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, all the places. And like, if you interact with me, like, I generally interact back. Uh, If I am snarky though, it just means I've had a really bad day and I apologise. But yes, uh, I am going to bid you a good evening and I hope you have a great night. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.